Okay, so, hey, look at that. We're talking about elders today. Aren't you glad you're here? Yay, elders, uh, church polity, fun, church governance. <laughs> Everyone's so excited about this, <laughs> as am I. Oh, all right, so I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, so, um, yeah, let's see. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us and jump straight in, so. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be challenged and shaped and molded by your word. Um, We thank you that um, sometimes it makes us uncomfortable, and and so we we pray that we would just continue to return uh, to what it says and be challenged by what it says and um, be challenged to wrestle with what it says and how it's saying it, and I just pray for that this morning as we look at uh, the concept of eldership and, and what it means for the church, what it means for our church, and, um, and how, how we are to apply it. And God, I just pray for this time that um, it would be a good start-off conversation for our church as we look forward to the future and what you may have for us. And um, God, we seek to be under your headship and your headship alone, Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So yes, we are talking about elders, but uh, the reason we're doing this now uh, is actually does flow from our time in Deuteronomy. In the past couple weeks, and as you know, like as we've gone through Deuteronomy, uh, what Deuteronomy is, is a second telling of the law to the people of Israel as they're at the border of the, of the land of Israel before they take over. And Moses is telling them, hey, these are the things you ought to expect as you go into the land, and this is what you should see and this is what you should not see. Um, And an overarching concept has been continue to trust the Lord in spite of anything else that you might see. Like in various ways, what he's saying over and over again is worship the Lord your God and the Lord your God alone, period. Um, And he says it in every concept, every little application, he's getting that across. And in the past couple of weeks, he's been talking about when you go into the land, you should expect to see some form of leadership among you. Like, you're, you're organized by your tribes, but even within those tribes, you should see leaders rise up to help you steward what God is giving to you, to help you steward the relationships that are going to exist there, the, the land that it's going to exist there, and all this. And so he says, you should expect to see a number of offices that occur in the land. And we've talked about those, right? We talked about judges and prophets and priests, to which uh, Moses you know, by the Lord's word says, you will see these. Actually, you should see these. You should, you, these should be part of your uh, dynamic, these three offices. He says, you might, if you so desire, have a king. And if you have a king, he should have a certain nature. You remember, we had four offices that we talked about, king, judge, priest, and, uh, and prophet. Uh, king was actually like an optional like, if you go do this, this is what it should look like. Not you shall go seek a king, but if you do, he should look like this. Um, so in a similar way, actually, I want to jump off from that and just kind of bring that application forward in an intentional manner to our space in the world of the church. Uh, because we should see in the church leadership. We should see it occur. And the Bible talks about it and describes it in great in a lot of detail in some ways, and other ways we're trying to grapple with and wrestle with uh, it as well. 
But in a similar way that we saw leadership rise up in Israel and expected that, the same way we should see that in the church. We should expect some form of leadership in the church, but explicit in the leadership of the church is that we are under the kingship of Jesus. Just like a king was a question mark in the Old Testament, uh, maybe you would do this. If you do do this, this should, ha- it should be who she- he should be like. Um, the reason that's a you might put a king up in Israel is because your true king, even in Israel, even in the Old Testament, your true king at the time is God, is the Lord. That there's one person that has been leading you by pillar of fire uh, and cloud and who's been showing you and providing for your land and, and showing where you are to go and giving you very clear instruction, things that maybe a king might lead his nation in. And so that's why I think it's optional uh, for these Old Testament people to say, okay, if you raise up a king that is a human, then he should look like this. But really, I'm actually your king. Um, and so when we translate into the world of the church, that is shown clearly. Christ is the king. He is the head of the church. He is over all and in all and through all. Um, when I was uh, gone last week, I, I literally preached the sermon that was on that, just that topic alone. So when we were at Grace Christian Fellowship last week preaching, my whole message was on the headship of Christ. And so I, I've got a lot of thoughts and notes and, uh, uh, and, and working through this concept of, of Jesus as the head of the church. Um, but the problem is when we think about churches, we think about uh, how they ought to be organized, and we start organizing people in this uh, particular way. We say, okay, this is, a, this is a lead pastor, and lead pastor's setting this vision, and he's setting the vision for this whole church, and everything kind of flows up to this lead pastor's vision and what he is putting forward and what he is doing and his kind of things. And it becomes about the personalities that are leading the church rather than the actual head of the church, which is Christ. And if you look at, you know, all the tragedies of Christendom in the church, men who have fallen, most of the time they were vulnerable to this. They lost sight of Jesus as their head and felt that they were the head. Felt proud of what they had accomplished and set it in front of the people and could not be questioned. They lost sight of Jesus as the head, and it's a very simple concept, and so I've got a very simple diagram to show you (laughs) that explains this. I know you're going to be wowed by my illustrative capabilities, so just hold on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. I'll be in the back signing autographs of this um, afterwards. Um, it's really pretty simple. And honestly, you could like do all sorts of diagrams to figure out how you want to structure you know, the polity of your church or whatever, but I think this describes it well in my concept of things, and I'm going to talk through this a little bit as we go. But main point is, I, I have a diagram of how I see the church flowing. I realized this week that that diagram didn't have Jesus on it, at least not explicitly. You know what I mean? Like, it was assumed, which it should be assumed, kind of, but it also should just be explicit, right? And so I redid the thing and put Jesus really big across the top, pointing at everything. Um, just so we know, like, hey, this isn't coming from man, this is coming from Christ, um, and we're submitted to Christ. Um, 
So Christ is the head. I think this is operational in every church. It used to be up at the top, right? That's the top. How you structure the bottom piece, uh, there's some debate, some questions about how you do that. How I read Scripture and understand Scripture is this picture here in terms of uh, some, some um, legal positions uh, of, of the church or actual positions of the church. Uh, Jesus is the head of the membership of the church. Like, we are all priests, right? Remember our Old Testament context, right? The priest is the one that is worshiping before the throne. Guess what? After the veil is torn, you're a priest. You're worshiping at the throne with just as much access to Jesus as any pastor has. You don't have to go to Jesus through me. You don't. You don't have to go to Jesus through any man. You go straight to him. So Jesus is the head of the church. I think scripture does show that there are elders called to lead a church. But those elders are members of the church, which is submitting to Christ, and servants of the church. They're smaller. They're not above, right? I mean, you could set this picture up to say Jesus, and then the elders, and then the members below, and then the staff that supports them, right? You could do that. That's how you could put the image. Maybe I should have done it like a couple examples of that, but I didn't. That was, you know, great forethought. The elders are part of the body. They're equivalently, equivalent, they're in, a, in an equivalent sense, they are in submission to Christ. They have a role of service and servanthood to the body of believers as it submits to the Lord Jesus. I've got the staff over there because you can also have particular people called as staff who aren't elders. Uh, it does kind of bump out of the membership just to explain because, I mean, you could hire someone that is a believer, I think would be good, uh, you know, uh, who might not be part of your church. And so, you know, that's fine. I'm good with that. Anyway, so if you're like, looks like his circle is bumping out of the membership. So that was actually intentional. That was not a design flaw. That was exactly how I wanted to display it. Okay. So Christ is the head of the church, and, and the elders are servant to the membership. And, and so it's really important for us as we think about leaders in the church, whether pastor or elder or whatever it is, that we do not think of them as the world thinks of them. So often we put a title on something and we're like, oh, they're important because they have a title. It's like, no, we're just trying to describe what this person does in the organization. So for instance, in, in our church, my title is lead minister. I've chosen that with a lot of purpose, not out of pride to say, oh, he's the lead minister. Uh, I didn't choose senior minister because, you know, I'm whatever. I don't know, because I'm not, I guess I was the oldest at some, anyway, okay. I feel like senior minister isn't the thing I wanted to get, get across. What I wanted to get across was that I am a lead of ministers, right? You are all ministers. You're ministers of reconciliation according to 2 Corinthians 5. Just like Luke talked about some last week, you are all priests and ministers of the, of the ministry of reconciliation. So all my role is to do is help lead you in that, help show you, point you to things that help you in your ministry, which is reconciliation, bringing sinners to the Father, to the throne of the Father. Uh, similarly, Connor is not the only person that worships Jesus He's not the only one that sings a song to the Lord when we gather together. 
He is the lead worshiper. He leads us in gathering together and singing songs to Jesus, right? And so there's a purpose in that title. But so often we look at these titles and say, oh, they have power. Because in our world, when someone gets a title, that means they have power. And that's not the point in the church. It's totally different than that. The eldership, just like uh, headship in, in marriage, just like uh, staff positions, these are all service roles, roles of servants. Just like we talked about the Levites in the Old Testament, the whole job of the Levite in the Old Testament was to prepare the things for the priests to minister at the temple. They're just gathering all the things together so that the priest can then go forward and minister at the temple. They're the lowest. They have no land and no inheritance in the entire thing. They're completely dependent upon the rest of the organization, the rest of the nation, for their sustenance. They have to eat part of the sacrifice that other people are offering. This is what they're dependent on. They're servants. So in the same way, when you think of someone called to this uh, role of an elder or a, a staff position, uh, it is not some uh, high, powerful position, or le- at least it should not be. It should be one of servanthood. Servanthood primarily to Christ, as with the rest of the membership, but servanthood then to the membership that it may also bow to Christ. Too often when we think of a term elder and leader in the church, we get pictures in our mind of broken concepts of this. People who have taken a a title of elder and abused that position in a way that has tainted the name itself. Either tainted it by, by making light of the position and, and, and holding it in a wrong way, or by taking it as a title of the world and lording it over other people and saying, I'm an elder, you have to listen to me. That is never the way an elder is called to speak. Just like in marriage, if you are the husband and you have a wife, you are not to have that kind of language towards someone. I am the husband and so you must do what I say. Nope, that's not very compelling, is it? In fact, that's a little terrible. So in the same way here, the elders are a, uh, in submission to Christ and servanthood to the membership. The membership of priests can worship our Lord Jesus. And so we need to be sure that when we think about leadership in the church, we're not thinking about power positions. We're thinking about people who have taken on extra work onto their life, for which they are not paid generally, or not paid very much, uh, to serve the body of believers, that the body of believers might worship our Lord Jesus. So make sure we're we're considering a topic like this, and and I believe this is like a beginning of a conversation for us in a lot of ways, um, that we don't use past experience of church leadership or worldly dynamics as we seek what we ought to do. Rather, let's go past all that, back to Scripture, and say, what is Scripture calling me to do as a leader in the church? In the same way that you you ought not go to the world and and come up with ideas about how marriage should work, rather you should go to Scripture and say, oh, well, it looks like here Scripture says uh, that in Ephesians, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself a savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to uh, submit everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives in a selfish way that builds you up only. No. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The man isn't put in a position of leadership so that his needs can be fulfilled and that he can be built up. Rather, that he can be a servant to his wife. The word submission gets real ugly because we've got a really ugly picture of it. But when a man has sacrificed himself for a woman, sacrificed his desires and needs and wants for a woman, that is compelling. It is not disgusting. And there's a unity that results in that. And the same thing is true in eldership. Our head is Christ. Christ, and if you take a picture of the body... Um, this picture of Jesus as the head of the church is a compelling one. The, the head, the brain specifically, right, is in communication with every single part of the body and responsive to the needs of every single part of the body. That's why it's the head, right? This picture of Jesus as the head, it is responsive to every piece and above every piece, even the leaders within it. Christ is our head. So when we're thinking about eldership, um, the question comes up, what, well, what in the world does an elder do? <laughs> um, and I've got a few things that I want to share before we get to the qualifications of an elder, which is what our main passage is about today. Um, the role of the elder is this. I came up with four Ds, so because I'm a preacher, so I, I, I got alliteration in my veins. Um, so the role of elders is four Ds. Um, the role of doctrine, the role of discipleship, the role of decision-making, and the role of discipline. When, uh, when, sorry, when Paul was leaving on his way to Jerusalem, he stopped by Ephesus, and he loved Ephesus and the church there, and he called the elders from there. He called them down and said, hey, I want you to gather here. I need to talk to you before I go to Jerusalem. I can't go there because I love you guys so much. I'd spend too much time. So he called the elders to them and said, listen, you are guards of the flock. There are people that are going to come in and going to try and deceive you with other gospels, other knowledge, and your role as elders is to go back and defend the flock against the world's wisdom and false doctrines. One of the primary roles in eldership is to be watchful over what we are proclaiming. It's important because, uh, as you guys know, you probably don't remember a single sermon that I've preached. Like, you probably don't remember much of anything that I've said in terms of the whole. And I, I don't either, really. <laughs> okay? And so we, we think about this sermon as this very important piece, and we're going to make sure that that's like perfectly whatever. The reason it's important for the elders to be watching over that is over the course of time, slowly, as you hear me speak over and over and over again, you are going to pick up some things. And what you pick up is very important. So I hope that you've picked up some things like you are a priesthood, right? That your relationship with Jesus does not flow through me, but flows directly to Christ. 
I hope that you pick up some things like that, that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to the Father except through him. I hope you pick up that we are saying Jesus is the only way to heaven. I don't want to make any mistakes about that, right? I'm not trying to preach a different gospel. I'm trying to preach the gospel that Christ came and died for you. So the role of an elder is to be sure that our message as a whole comes across that way. Because you might not remember one sermon, but you might remember the character and nature and overarching message of our church. The role of elders is to steward our doctrine. The role of elders is to disciple. Um, Paul, when he's speaking to the leaders uh, of the church, calls them to entrust this word to men who are able to speak it. He calls the disciples themselves as he commissions them for the church to go therefore into the world and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and he is with us to the end of the age. The leaders of the church are instructed with this um, role of making sure that as a church, we are growing, making sure the systems in which we operate are ones in which our body can flourish from the top to the bottom. This church is built on a model of family integration, (laughs) which you have heard often, (laughs) even this morning, right? Uh, We don't know how to do it. We're trying to figure it out, but our model of discipleship from top to bottom is not to programize to every single age and group, but rather to learn from one another, and that gets messy. Um, I think it's true to what they may have been doing back in the day. I mean, uh, you know, I don't think they had a bunch of kids' ministries running when Paul was preaching all night long uh, in, in the top room of someone's house. You know, I think these things were natural you have some crying baby. That's okay. It's not a problem. The kid doesn't know what's going on. They're just trying to see their mom or whatever. So the role of the elder is to balance this discipleship process and make sure that at every level we are pointing people toward Christ and growing in Christ in some way. The role of the elder is to help us with decisions. Turns out as you grow, I and mean, we're a small family church, right? So when we have decisions, I try and as much as possible present as much as possible to you about how I am processing a decision. But as we grow, Lord willing, there is a need for making decisions in a smaller fashion. If you got like 100 people in a room and you're trying to make a decision about something very important, it's going to be a little more difficult to work through that. But if you have men you can trust and who have your needs at their interest only and are representing you in a, in a way that is faithful to the gospel, it's much easier to say, all right, how, how do we proceed as we submit to Lord Jesus, as our congregation submits to Lord Jesus, how do we make this decision that is before us that we are responsible for ultimately, both in a spiritual sense, also in a legal sense? Decisions are important. Finally, discipline, uh, when Jesus speaks of discipline in, uh, in Matthew 18, he speaks of this concept of uh, me going to my brother if he has offended me and saying, hey, uh, or if he's in sin, and say, hey, man, you got to 
you got to get this right. Like this activity that you're in is like, is destructive to you, your family and others, or you've hurt someone in some way. And I'm confronting you about that. If you don't respond, Jesus says, go to two or three other people, involve them in the process, brothers, and say, hey man, like you, we agree. Like you really need to like get with this and, and get around this and get your head around this and move forward because like the other direction is where you're headed and, and that's a dangerous spot to be. And, and if, he, if he still refuses, you're, you're called to formally go before the church and say, bro, like, you know, this is where you're at. Like either you get in line and, and, and make changes here or like you are saying you aren't part of what we are saying we are. And so we're going to disfellowship you because you're saying, this is not how I'm going to operate. And so how do you organize something like that? (laughs) Just random collection of people gathered together that are saying, I'm a Christian, I'm going to be the judge of this guy. No, you better have some like, you know, guidelines around what we think is membership in a church and how we are supporting each other and what is not so that it can be very clear and honest and transparent about how we're proceeding. So the elders steward this discipline in the church. So if you're going to entrust someone with that kind of responsibility, stewardship of doctrine, of discipleship, of decisions, of discipline, of all these things, if you're going to say, all right, we're going to, we're going to choose this group of people to help us submit to Christ as we go through this process. Fundamentally, it should just be someone you trust. And it can be stated as simply as that. The, the person that is an elder ought to be someone you can trust, period. Paul goes on to great detail to explain to Timothy what that trust should look like and give some nature to it. But ultimately, this should be someone you can trust. I'm going to get one qualification out of the way um, just to put it on the table and let you know where I stand. Because uh, it is part of it. There's a point in, which, in 1 Timothy 3 where it says, he should be a husband of one wife. And so there is, and I'll just say it out front, there is a debate about whether an elder in a church can be male or can be female. There's a conversation about that within Christendom. So what I'm saying is that within various churches, there is disagreement about whether an elder can be a female. And I, you know, we know people that have that uh, uh, opinion or read of the scripture, and they're believers, and that is fine. I don't hold that interpretation. I think the Bible is speaking to a male leadership in the church um, against the backdrop of a culture that, that once, you know, uh, a level of equality among genders, I realize that's not a popular thing to say. <laughs> and I wish, honestly, I wish I didn't have to say it under my own convictions. But as I read scripture, that's where my convictions are. And so I can't be untrue to what the Lord has been speaking to me about what this role is, even if it conflicts with cultural norm. And so, yeah, it's debatable. It's a conversation that we can have and that that people can have. And it's not one that we should say, oh, you're not a Christian because you're egalitarian. (laughs) Only complimentarians go to heaven. So that's like ridiculous. 
We should be able to disagree on some things and go forward as brothers and sisters in Christ. However, the tough thing about this particular topic, as opposed to like creationism or end times theology or whatever, is that this one has some like practical implications that are, you know, a little challenging if you disagree on them. Like it's very hard to, you know, propose a female elder to a church that says we only have male elders. It just doesn't work, right? And so respectfully, you have to say, we disagree, and that's okay, and we love you, but that's not how we are reading it here. So that said, I'll give you a couple reasons why I hold this. Uh, First, Jesus chose 12 disciples, um, and those 12 disciples are men. And you know, I get the argument that maybe he's culturally just talking, you know, trying to be sensitive to the culture at the time, except that I don't read Jesus as a person that's very culturally uh, sensitive. I I read him as a person that's willing to turn tables over and speak harshly toward Pharisees and Sadducees and be very uh, blunt with his position against the culture's norms. And so when I see him say, yep, I'm going to choose these 12 men as the leaders of the church, and I'm going to commission them primarily Uh, to lead the church. And then when uh, Pentecost comes and we select another individual, that person by the Holy Spirit also is a man. Um, I just have to say that looks like it's pointing my interpretation read toward the elders are are men. Um, The other argument in place I go to, and again, I'll tell you, there are people who interpret this the other side. So I'm totally acknowledging that this is where I interpret it, all right? Um, the other role that is important to consider as we consider this topic is marriage. God, again, in Ephesians says, uh, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, like we said, and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's a clear um, leadership role that is given to the man in the household. He's responsible for his wife and his children and their raising. And yeah, do we see that broken? We do. Do we see women step up in the void? Yeah, we do. And that's a good thing. But does it call us away from what God tells us ought to be? No, it doesn't. And so he calls us to this. And so when you think about, okay, we've got uh, husband and wife. Uh, husband, uh, wife is submitted to husband. Okay, say a uh, female elder is drawn into a church leadership role, and now husbands are submitting to a wife of another man, even though she is submitting to her husband. Anyway, it gets a little convoluted when you think of it that way, and I think one of the reasons God is saying I'm going to choose this and this is just for the simple sake of order, the simple sake of making sure we understand there's a framework here, not putting one above the other, right? Because in creation, God says, I created the male and female in my image. Not man in a better image than me or woman in a better image than me, equal in Christ. At the end of the age, when we go to heaven, there's no marriage. That thing is absolved. And we are at the feet of Jesus as equal people. And so I think marriage speaks to the need for this dynamic of, of male leadership in the church. Um, I will acknowledge, again, 
God uses things when necessary. You look at the example of Deborah in the Old Testament. She steps up when Barak failed. But is that a, uh, a, an agreement from the Lord that Barak shouldn't have stepped up? No, Barak should have stepped up. It's to his shame that Deborah came forward and led in his place. And we're glad Deborah did. You know, it shows that God is willing to use everyone at any time for his purposes. I mean, you know, so, um, so we shouldn't, shouldn't disregard that. But his plan, his call to Brock was, Brock, you're supposed to lead. All right, so that's aside. You kind of see how I read the text, and I'm sorry if you don't read it that way, but it's how I read it, and I'm happy to have more discussion about it and talk about it more as we proceed through uh, through exploring this together, um, but uh, but that's how that's how I read it. Um, and so so what is that person's character supposed to be like? This is we're finally reading our verse. Here you go, First Timothy, chapter three, longest introduction. I promise I'll, I'll wrap I'll wrap quickly. But First Timothy chapter three, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. A noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Um, There are qualifications for deacons, which I'm going to skip for now because they repeat a a lot of it. but I'm going to jump down to verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Great indeed we confess the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So the qualifications for an elder, again, I think simply stated, this is someone you can trust. Someone above reproach. That is, you can't find a fault. You go looking for a fault, and you can't find one that you can stand on very long. Above reproach. The husband of one wife. Um, you know, this meaning that he shouldn't have multiple wives, I think, obviously. Um, but that it is important that this person hasn't gone through a lot of marriages. Okay? Because that's wrong, not necessarily. Another topic to discuss at another time. <laughs> but if we're going to say, this is a man who is faithful to his wife in all circumstances, then that's certainly a key indicator of his faithfulness, a long-standing relationship with one wife. Sober-minded, uh, self-controlled, 
um, not a drunkard. I'm going to group those kind of together a little bit because um, they all center around this idea of self-control, taking care of yourself, right? I'm not going to let my body go um, in any fashion. Uh, I'm going to be one who understands and thinks gently about things, um, respectable, hospitable, give you the shirt off their back, is willing to take you in when you need it, willing to, you know, hey, let's get lunch, whatever, hospitable. Someone who wants to have relationship with you, who's not avoiding you, who's not running from you, but rather reaching out to you. Someone that's able to teach. This is one qualification that is different than the deacons. Uh, Elder is called to be able to teach. It is a requirement of the office that you ought to be able to teach. As in opposition to deacons where that isn't necessarily a thing. Um, not violent, but gentle. Uh, that is responding um, calmly, cool-headed. Not raising your urge to physically respond to something, uh, which can be a bent for us. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Recognizes that the goal in life isn't to build a big hill. The old mountain of gold right? A few things that testify to this again are the way his children operate. And we talked about this some on, on Saturday, Luke and I, about, okay, what, at what point do you get to like, be free from your children being submissive to you as a qualification for eldership? At what point is that, you know? Because I got questions. Um, I think it's, you know, it's at a point where they're making their own decisions, right? There's a, there's a time under your headship in the house that they ought to understand who you are and respect who you are and be responsive to who you are um, as a leader of the house. And it's not really, honestly, I don't think this is like a, a, a situation that should be taken in shame or judgment, really, uh, because the truth is, some houses are harder to manage than others. It's just a fact. If you're going to be called to step outside of your responsibility of job and managing your house into also managing the church, it's not just a judgment of how you've managed your house, but how much bandwidth you actually have. Um, in my church back home, there was a gentleman who, uh, I remember he was at church every day, and at some point he did actually become an elder, but uh, he had a, a child um, who had, and I can't remember the disease, but it was a, a paralyzing disease. He was living, um, but I, I want to say it was Down syndrome, but I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know exactly what the complication was, right? Guess what? You know, did he have trouble managing his household? Maybe not in a negative sense, but just in a sense that, like, there's a lot to manage here. And so, yeah, I don't have this all together. And in fact, I'm trying to keep it together, and maybe even faithfully so, but I don't have time to step out and also manage a church. So let's also consider that framework of it as well. But it is important that this person has their household in order, such that if elder is gone responding to church's needs, the household's going to be okay. Manage your household well. Says, if you're not able to manage your own household, how will we care for God's church? First ministry for us as men is our wives and our families. 
ourselves, you know, if we're, if we're single, then ourselves. And so we have to manage those things well. Um, he must not be a recent convert because you had not seen much as a believer if you're a recent convert. You're excited, right, about what Jesus has done for you, and it's awesome, and praise God, and, you know, we go tell the world, and it's, it's great. You ever run up against those rough patches in your faith or rough patches in your life or whatever and been tested by that? Does it need some time for this to grow? And finally, he should be thought of well by outsiders. If you're <laughs> this individual that is respected uh, and caring for his household well, is not a lover of money, is hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, not quarrelsome, you better also <laughs> be respected by outsiders. It means anyone that comes in and, and um, tries to accuse you of something can't. An elder is someone you can trust in the sum of it. At the end of this passage, uh, again, I read verses 14 uh, down to 16 just to remind us what this is about. Why? Why elders? And I think Paul is explaining it again to Timothy, just saying, he says, I hope to come to you soon to be there, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So his message to Timothy, okay, if I don't come and remind you of these things, I want to make sure you know it is important to have a leadership in your church that you can trust, that can help steward the load of a body of believers that is coming to know Jesus more and more every single day. It was important then, when they were still trying to figure this thing out, okay, at this point they're like, what, 30 years into existing as a church, as a whole, (laughs) is just as important now when we're riddled with our own sin and broken for our church to be led well by people we can trust who don't lord it over us as the Gentiles do, so to speak, who don't hold a position for its power, but rather hold a position out of service to the body of Christ. Paul says the church is the household of God. So if we are claiming that this is God's house, then it better reflect something beautiful. And that beauty comes with some order and some vision and direction that is stewarded by people that are under submission to Jesus Christ in service to the body. And committed to the expansion of the kingdom of God as a pillar and buttress of the truth. I think it's taken on by the nature of our head. Our head is Christ. 
So Christ, right, who is king of all heaven, through whom creation was made, by whom it was made, for whom it was made, Christ, Jesus. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. What is he talking about there? Jesus, the king of the universe, for whom everything was created, stepped down and sacrificed into the world to serve it by dying on a cross for it. Taken up in glory, resurrected from that death on the cross. If we're thinking about leadership in the church, we're thinking of someone who reflects the personhood of Christ, is willing to sacrifice needs and wants and desires for the good of the body itself. We're not thinking about a power structure. We're thinking about a servant. A servant that is like Jesus. Christ is the head of the church. As we wrap up, Jesus is the head. Everything we do ought to reflect Christ and his love for us. Second, we're called to lead this church in a way that displays Jesus as the king. When someone looks at our church, they should not say, oh, that's Blake's church. Shouldn't say that. Hope they don't say that. Hope they never say that. Fall into that all the time. Oh, whose church is that? Is that, oh, is that so-and-so's church? <clears throat> nope, it's Jesus' church. It's not theirs. It's a little thing, but it's important for us to catch ourselves when we start saying that, oh, that's so-and-so's church. That we're not just like flippantly saying that in a way that acknowledges them as ruler of said church, right? No, Jesus is the king. And finally, we don't pattern the world. We pattern scripture. And it's hard sometimes to do that. It's very difficult. Uh, the pressure of the world on ourselves and on our organization and on, like all of us is, is difficult because it's up in our face all the time. It's in us because we grew up in it or whatever. And so it's very difficult to like come up against stuff that seems out of step with how we've been raised and what we've been raised up in and have to compare it against something that, that runs against that. And scripture often runs against what culture has brought us up to be comfortable with. And so as we pattern this, we have to pattern it not against what we see in the world, but what we see in scripture. Will there be things we can learn? Sure, definitely. But is it our benchmark for how we should operate? No, definitely not. Christ is the head in Christ alone. All right, everyone survived? <laughs> okay. Um, again, I, I hope this is a, a start of a conversation for us. We feel it's a time where we're led to talk about eldership and talk about its importance um, and, and, and be ready for that, whatever that means. And so we're just like saying that. We, we desire to be a church. It's not led by one person. I need accountability. 
okay? I don't, I don't need to be uh, running the thing just my, myself. Um, and so that's a, that's a real thing. Um, Connor and I both need accountability in this. And so, uh, you know, we're saying that and seeing that as a blind spot right now and wanting to be sure that we're looking forward to and have our eyes open to what God would have us do in the area of leadership. And as I read scripture, the next right step is to be uh, eyes open for uh, eldership in our church. And so, again, that's why we're broaching the subject and hopefully continue to converse about it and pray about it and seek the Lord about it as we go forward. So pray with me now. Lord, we thank you uh, for your desire to proclaim your kingdom upon this earth. We thank you for your desire to do so in a fashion that is orderly and respected by all. Uh, And we thank you for uh, your desire to use broken, imperfect people like us. Uh, God, we pray that you give us eyes to see and read your scripture well, uh, to be challenged by Holy Spirit and our convictions about it, um, and, and to submit, God, to, to submit to you. I submit to you, Lord Jesus. I just speak um, the truth that this is not my church. This is your church. It never was my church, isn't my church, won't be my church ever. It's always your church. So God, I I cast aside all uh, pride of things I've done and lay at your feet and say, as you always, leading at every step. None of us take credit for this, Lord. You have all the credit and all the glory goes to you, Lord Jesus. May we continue in humble submission to you. And we desire it because we've seen you display it to us. You came down from heaven to die for us. You're the last person that should have done it from a positional standpoint, but you did it. Turns out you're the only one that could. And so we trust you, Lord Jesus. We trust you in the leadership of this church and pray that our leadership would reflect your nature would display your glory and that many would come to know you through it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.